If you have a Bible, you can open it to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going through the book of Hebrews this summer. If you're visiting with us and haven't been with us these past few weeks, this summer we're working through this important New Testament study of the Old Testament, I guess you could call it. It's a sermon to some friends of the writer, and it's an intriguing and fascinating book. Two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 2 and saw how Jesus is both our leader and our older brother, the writer encourages his friends to see. And this morning, you see something a little bit different as he develops his train of thought. And there's a question that he helps us to think about here, and that's this. What is the proof that a person is, in fact, a Christian? What is the proof that a person is, in fact, a Christian? The Bible gives us a few different things to think about in that regard. One of those is love. They will know you by the way that you love one another. That's one of the signs of being a Christian. Another is, as Jesus says, you belong to me if you obey my commandments. If you do as I say, then you belong to me. Now, both of those things, loving one another and obeying the commandments of Christ, are somewhat of a struggle to us, aren't they? Sometimes we're not so sure how well we do with those things. This writer to the Hebrews gives another answer to that question, and I'll be honest with you, it's a little more difficult than the first two, actually. And so here he gives another aspect of that proof. What is it? What does he say that is proof that a person is, in fact, a Christian? Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, then, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another daily, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who were heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of 
unbelief. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit. Would you come and visit us now through your word? Because if you don't, Lord, we will just be wandering aimlessly through these words. But if you give us your spirit, we will understand. We pray you would do that for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. The summer after I finished high school, a friend and I took a few different outdoor sorts of jobs, mowing grass, doing some landscaping and such. It was kind of part-time as we, we bided our time before leaving for college. And we decided we would add a bit of physical activity to that by doing a triathlon. We had never done a triathlon before. It was 1987. I'm not sure that many people had done a triathlon before. It was really just then kind of becoming somewhat mainstream. And I had played lots of sports growing up and and was familiar with all the activities involved with sports for sure. I, I knew that I could ride a bike 24 miles, which is what this race was going to involve. And I knew that I could run six miles. I had done that plenty of times before. That, that was not going to be a problem. I was wise enough to know that swimming was going to be the problem. I knew how to swim, but I didn't know how to swim, if you know what I mean. I had never swum laps before, and, and if you're a swimmer, then you'll appreciate that very much, I'm sure. And so I knew that was going to be an obstacle to me, so I went to the YMCA I got in the pool, and I swam one lap. I got back to the edge, and I stopped, and I thought, whew, should I quit? It was hard. I struggled through one more lap, and I got out of the pool, and I went home. And I thought, I've got to swim a mile. I can hardly swim two laps. Should I quit? The next day, I went back to the YMCA, and I swam three laps. The day after, I swam four laps. I didn't quit. I kept going back each day and adding a lap until I finally could swim 35 laps, about a mile. And in the midst of all that, I didn't run or bike at all. I wasn't worried about those things. I could run. I could bike. It was the swimming I was concerned about. And then race day came in August, of course, And the swim was going to be in a lake, which didn't bother me. I I had swum in plenty of lakes. I had water skied in lakes before. It wasn't a problem at all to swim in the lake water. But I'd never swum in a lake with two or three hundred other people who were kicking and shoving and pushing to make their way through a crowd of swimmers. And about a hundred yards off the edge of the lake, I began to wonder in my mind, should I quit? And then I realized I can't quit now. I'm in the middle of this dark lake, and if I quit now, I'm going to sink down to the bottom, and they'll never find me under this mass of swimming arms and legs. I couldn't quit then. Well, I made it around the buoy and back to the shore, and and I was far from first, but I was also far from last, and so I made my way on up to the bikes and dried off and got on my bike, and, and 24 miles on the bike was okay. And then came the run. By now, the sun was up high, and it was hot. And I knew that I could run six miles, but I had not accounted for the fact that by then I would have swum a mile and biked 24, and now it would be hot. I'll confess to you, I wandered through that run walking frequently and wondering, should I quit? As I finally approached the finish line somewhat slowly, 
I began to hear cheers from the crowd that had gathered near the finish line, and, and I didn't know any of those people. I thought they can't be cheering for me, and I looked over my shoulder, and there was a large, much older man lumbering along slowly and catching up to me. They were cheering for him to catch up to this young athlete who was struggling to finish. And I thought, I can't let him do that. And so I, I finished strong. I finished the race. I didn't quit it. But should I quit? I mean, that's a legitimate question, isn't it? In so many cases, we, we think it's sometimes a very reasonable question. You know, if you've, if you've had lots of schooling and you're working on a master's degree or even just a bachelor's degree, you're kind of getting to the end of it and, and you, you've had so many late nights or all-nighters and you're wondering, is this going to really matter in the end? And you wonder, maybe I ought to quit. It's taking too much of a toll on me. Or maybe you have a, a job that causes all kinds of stress in your family and it, it takes its toll on your emotions, your energy, your physical well-being, your, your, uh, your family and, and their circumstances. And you begin to wonder, maybe I ought to quit. Or maybe you've been in a destructive relationship before that causes all kinds of its own sorts of deep wounds, and you wonder, maybe it's a reasonable thing for me to quit this. Sometimes it's a reasonable thought, perhaps. Sometimes it's not reasonable at all, but it's tempting. You know, maybe you've experienced resisting peer pressure, and and those around you want you to do something that you know you ought not to do, and they're always on you and pressuring you to do it, and eventually you begin to wonder, maybe I should just quit resisting their pressure and just join the crowd. Or maybe even in marriage, after 15 or 20 or 25 years of marriage, things are okay, but you've realized they're not all that you had maybe hoped that it would be after a couple of decades of marriage, and you begin to wonder, maybe I should quit. It's not a reasonable question, but it's tempting. For the Hebrews, the temptation was to quit on Christ. That was their temptation. That was their question. Should we quit being Christians? Today, there are all kinds of obstacles to being a Christian, and you have to recognize that that's simply true. The people around you might look at you and say, well, you're just too constrained by certain ethics that your Christianity requires of you. If you would free yourself of that, then it would open up all kinds of possibilities for you in your life, in your career, choices that you could make if you were not a Christian. You know, our day and age, in our culture, in our particular country even, more and more it's coming to be that you have to recognize that even just your mere association with a Bible-believing church like this one could actually jeopardize some of your professional and work and career and social possibilities. You have to recognize that that's simply true. The Hebrews were tempted to quit Christ because of the political and social circumstances of their day. And so the writer says to them, don't quit. Jesus is infinitely greater than anything you've had before or than anything that your culture and world could possibly offer to you. And so he he says to them, he calls them holy brothers. Apparently he's pretty sure about where they stand and he wants to encourage them in that. Holy brothers, he's just told them that Jesus is their older brother. He's their leader And he's the one who has set them apart for holiness. He's set them apart, sanctified them. And he says to them, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. That is, put your thoughts carefully on this, friends, and think about who this man 
was. Jesus is our apostle. Now, we don't think about Jesus as an apostle often. We think about the apostles of Jesus, but we don't think of him as an apostle, maybe. But this writer says that's exactly what he was. An apostle is one who is sent by someone greater to represent that one. Jesus was sent by God himself to represent God to us. Therefore, he is our apostle. And he's also our high priest. That is, he's the one who represents us before God. He's the one who stands between us and God. And so theologically, that brings the writer to Moses. And as he expounds on Moses for his Jewish Christian friends, he makes one profound challenge to them, and it's a difficult one. He says to them this, Prove your trust in Christ's faithfulness by persevering in your own. Prove your trust to Christ's faithfulness by persevering in your own, he says. I've kind of broken that down into three big ifs that I think he works through here in this passage. One of those is this. If Jesus was faithful, then we should hope in him. If Jesus was faithful, then we should hope in him. Now, Moses was very important to the Hebrew Christians, even more so than angels. You remember in the earlier chapters of Hebrews, he's talked about Jesus being greater than the angels, and that kind of baffles us a little bit. But the Hebrew Christians thought highly of angels. They thought much more highly of Moses. Angels had assisted in delivering God's word, but Moses had actually delivered it. Verse 2, he says, Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, he's alluding, conveniently for us, to the book of Numbers. Remember, we're doing the the book of Numbers as our Lectio Continua, our continuous reading, and it's not entirely continuous because we're breaking it into parts as we go. But he alludes to the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 12, God speaks to Miriam and Aaron, who are Moses' sister and brother, who have begun to oppose Moses, to put themselves up against Moses as a leader of God's people. And God speaks to them there saying this, To a prophet I give visions and dreams, but not so with Moses, who is faithful in all my house. To him I give my very words, Miriam and Aaron, so don't oppose him. God himself says, Moses is faithful in all of my house. And so the Hebrew Christians revered Moses. And that's fair enough. We might expect that. But the writer says then that Jesus has been counted as worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? Why does he say that? Because Moses is faithful in God's house. Jesus is faithful over God's house. In other words, he built it. God's house, of course, as our liturgy told you earlier, is God's people. It's Israel. It is the church. We are God's house. And Moses faithfully served in the house. Jesus faithfully built the house. Therefore, Jesus is greater, he says, than Moses. Now, just as the Israelites first followed Moses, who they knew as the the bringer of plagues, the confronter of Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler on earth at the time, they must have looked at Moses and said, wow, this guy has some real credibility. He's got some courage, some, some bravery to him. We can follow this guy. And so they followed Moses. In the same way, Christians followed Jesus. They knew him as the healer, 
the worker of miracles, the teacher of profound truth. And so they said, wow, you know, this guy has some real credibility, some, some power to him. We can follow this guy. But over time, 40 years in the wilderness, Moses' credibility to the people began to wane, apparently. In the same way, after 30 years, after becoming Christians, this Hebrew congregation in perhaps Rome, Jesus' credibility maybe seemed to have faded for them over time. But even Moses had spoken of one to come who would be greater than he was. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses said this to the people. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is he to whom you should listen. Now Moses, looking forward in time, probably didn't really know who he was talking about. He knew more prophets would come. But Jesus referred to the fact that Moses spoke of him. And more explicitly, Peter and Stephen in the book of Acts quote this very verse from Deuteronomy 18 saying that when Moses said that, he was talking about Christ. He was saying that Jesus himself would be the greater prophet to come and to whom you should listen. And so Jesus, to whom we must listen, is our hope, he says. Verse 6, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. As Christians, what is our hope anyway? It's this, that the faithfulness of Jesus to obey God's commands is sufficient for us too. That's what we hope for. But there's a problem with that because there's another if to follow, and that's this one. If Israel was rebellious, then we are, as the hymn said, prone to wander. We're prone to go astray. If Israel was rebellious, then we certainly are prone to do the same. And so verse 7, he moves into a warning for these people, and he picks a very interesting place from which to do it. He quotes almost the entire second half of Psalm 95, which was, and these Hebrew Christians would have known it, a very well-known and frequently used call to worship in the synagogue throughout the Old Testament, or at least since the time that this psalm was written. And if you were to turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 95 and take a look, you would see why it was so well-known for that. It begins like this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. The Lord is our great God. It's a wonderful call to worship, a very powerful one, a very popular one among the Hebrews of the day. But halfway through, the psalmist shifts to a warning. And he says, as the writer here quotes in verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, that is God's voice, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah and Massa. Now, the writer to Hebrews and the text you're looking at doesn't specify those words. He just says, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The psalm says, as at Meribah and Massa. Meribah and Massa are uh, words that show up in Exodus 17. They mean quarreling and testing. It was a place that God named those names in a moment of the Israelites' rebellion against him. 
they had come out into the wilderness and they had been hungry and so they complained and God gave them manna. And now they're thirsty and they complain bitterly again, wanting to go back to Egypt. And so God tells Moses, strike that rock and I'll bring water from the rock so that the people can drink. And so Moses strikes the the rock, the water comes forth and the people can finally drink. And so this psalm explains that the people that Moses led out of Egypt were a paradigm for unfaithfulness. They had seen God work. They had seen God bring the plagues on Egypt as Moses led them. They had seen God divide the sea in half so that they could pass through into their freedom. They had seen God bring bread from heaven to the ground for them to eat. You might think, that they would assume that this God was going to provide for them, that he was going to care for their needs. He was going to give them what they needed, and he surely knew that they would need water to drink. Surely he'll provide water for us, but they didn't assume that. They complained bitterly against him. The psalmist says they put God to the test. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a book of essays, compiled a book of essays. It's called God in the Dock. It's a British term meaning the witness stand in a courtroom, a trial courtroom, in which you place someone on the witness stand, on the dock, and then grill them, test them to see if they know the truth or not. These people had put God in the dock, even though they'd seen his works for 40 years. You and I are tempted in that way as well. You know, you, you come to worship in order to listen and to sing and to worship your maker. So... This psalmist says, don't harden your heart. When you come to worship, don't harden your heart. Don't come to worship with a complaining heart. You know, we we come and we sit in worship, and oftentimes we're so tempted to sit there and in our heart think, well, I don't like that song or the tune to which we sing it. I don't like the way that we do that part of our worship service. I really wish we didn't do that, so I'm just not going to participate in that. Or I really don't like the way that that person looks or sings, and so I'm going to keep my distance from them. We come in with all these complaining heart issues. Don't come into worship with a denying heart either. As we read our confession of sin, don't read that and think in your heart, well, I don't do that. That's not my temptation. I don't struggle with that. That, That's not my sin. That must be someone else's sin. Don't come with a denying heart. And don't come with a cynical heart either. Don't come in saying, what am I going to get out of this? Because I'm not so sure that I'm going to get anything for myself. And then we walk away from a worship service saying, well, I didn't get anything from that myself. Don't come with a cynical heart. You come to worship. Don't instead harden your heart and so go astray. Now, Psalm 95 actually alludes to a second problem that the Israelites in the Old Testament dealt with. In verse 11, at the end of that psalm, you read this, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, in the book of Numbers, in chapter 13, you read that well-known story about the spies going into Canaan to spy out the land. There were 12 of them, scouts, that Moses sent ahead to check out the land and see what they were in for. Those spies came back with a mixed report. You may know, 
Ten of them came back saying, you know, it is a beautiful land. It's a land of milk and honey. It's a land that will provide for us all that we could ever want to have. But we saw something else there, and that was kind of troubling to us. The people are really big, and they're really strong and fierce. There's no way that we can conquer that land. We can't do it. We have to quit. Two of the spies came back saying, no, 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 no. They are big. But God has told us that's our land. God is with us. We can do it. Let's go. And the people refused. They took the report of the ten and said, we can't do it. What has God done to us? Moses, why have you brought us to this place? We're just going to be crushed by those big people. We're not going to go. And so God said to them, okay, I told you what I would provide for you. And if you won't trust me, then Okay, don't go. In fact, you can't go. I won't allow you to go and enter into the land where I would give you rest. The book of Hebrews helps us understand that term, rest, a little bit here. He explains to us through his theology here that that rest for those people was the land of Canaan. But there's more to that rest than just a land. There's heaven He explains that there's still a rest that remains in chapter 4, as we'll go into John will next week. In chapter 4, verse 4, we read this. We who have believed enter that rest. And in verse 11 there, he says, Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as the Israelites did. The rest is not yet fulfilled. And so don't harden your hearts. When you come to worship, don't go astray. God has shown himself to be a provider, so don't wander away. And so then, thirdly, finally here, there's sort of an uncomfortable promise. The third if is this. If God has claimed us, then we will hold on to the end. Now, I call it an uncomfortable promise, Because there are two verses here in this passage that should bother you maybe a little bit, I would think, if you take a look and careful to pay attention as we read this passage here. These two verses are very similar to one another, and these are the ones that provided the title of this sermon. In fact, in verse 6, we read this, We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And verse 14 sounds very similar. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We are God's house if we hold fast. We share in Christ if we hold on. These two additional conditional clauses that that the writer gives to us here address the question that theologians call perseverance, right? That's one of the the important Presbyterian sort of doctrines that we cling to, and we think of the perseverance of the saints, and, and we often kind of just sort of rest in that. We think, well, I'm a Presbyterian, and we believe in the perseverance of the saints, so I can just relax because, well, I'm a Presbyterian. We persevere, right? It's not that simple. Actually, it's, it's more complicated than that. This writer wants his people to understand. You know, we, we, we use the term once saved, always saved. Don't we really believe that? Well, yes, we do, but... The big part of that is, if you're once saved, if in fact you are, 
then yes. We are His house. We share in Christ if we hold on. But that requires something of us. As we heard moments ago in baptism, in coming to the table, it begins more and more to bear some sense of responsibility, to turn away from temptation and to trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. And that requires confidence, even courage. Some translations note here in these verses, 6, 14, if we hold fast our courage, our confidence, then we abide in Christ. I went with a group of sixth graders this past week to see the Hobbit movie. It was a field trip for sixth graders. They had just read The Hobbit for their class literature in the spring. And one of my favorite lines in that movie, and some of you are Hobbit fans and others of you don't care about that perhaps, but you should. One of my favorite lines in The Hobbit movie, in the book, is where the great wizard, Gandalf, is speaking to Bilbo, the little diminutive man who's on this journey. And he says to him, Bilbo, you've changed. You're different now. They're halfway into their journey. And he says, Bilbo, you've changed. And Bilbo kind of looks curious and he says, well, you know, I found something when we were in the, inside the mountain where we were before. And he's got something else on his mind. But the wizard wants to know, he says, what did you find? And Bilbo says, I found my courage. To which the wizard says, good, you'll need it. Now, courage is something that's difficult for us. In another important piece of literature, To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch gives maybe one of the best ever, I think, definitions of courage. When he says this, he says, Real courage is when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway and you see it through no matter what. That's real courage. When I was in sixth grade... In middle school, the school was 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, so I was on the low end of the totem pole. My brother was in 8th grade, and my brother was six foot four in the 8th grade. Nobody messed with him, but there were some who didn't like him, including one 8th grader who was a wrestler. Well, this wrestler was not going to take on a six foot four eighth 8th grader, but when he saw me after lunch one day out on the field at recess after lunch, he thought, well... That kid's related to the six foot four kid. Maybe I can do something with him. So he challenged me to a wrestling match. I couldn't refuse it. I didn't want to wrestle an eighth grader. I was kind of big myself, maybe almost as big as an eighth grader, but I didn't want to wrestle him. I knew he would whoop me. This guy was a wrestler. I wasn't, but I couldn't refuse it. All my friends were there watching, and I said, okay, I'll wrestle you. He ground my head into the dirt. He threw me up and down and sideways, and after about three minutes, he was done with me, and he got up and walked away. I don't know how much courage I showed that day, more so than just trying to avoid the shame of my friends seeing me refuse a challenge, but that's a picture of what courage is. You know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway, and you see it through no matter what. Belief in Christ requires courage in the midst of an unbelieving world. It simply does because there will be conversations, there will be associations with people who challenge you on what you believe and you know that they're not going to be persuaded by you. 
you know that they're going to withhold something from you because of your profession of faith in Christ. You know you're licked before you begin. And yet this writer says it requires courage. Gospel courage does not demand to win today because it knows that its hope has already won tomorrow. And so he encourages these people in that. You know, we baptize and we admit young ones to the table. And when we do that, sometimes parents tend to breathe a sigh of relief. We might kind of think, whew, okay, well, we got them to the table. They can eat and drink now. Don't have to worry about that one anymore. How about the next one? Be careful, parents. Don't do that. Don't breathe such a sigh of relief because we know that Jesus is faithful. We don't know for sure if we will be. We share in Christ if indeed we hold on. You know, when we baptize and when we admit to the table, it may be that we ought to ask those ones when they come, have you found your courage? Because you will need it. You will need it. How do I know if I will persevere as a Christian? How do I know if my children will persevere as Christians? The answer is one that you may not really like a whole lot, but it's the one that the Bible gives, and it is this. You will know that you will persevere when you persevere. So hold on. You know, it makes all the sense in the world to us. It's the way that we live, really. You know, if if you love your children until they bring shame and embarrassment on your family name and then you disown them, did you ever actually love them? If you are patient with your friends and patient with your friends until they demand too much of you and then you're not patient and you find another friend, were you ever really patient with them? If you are devoted to your spouse until they simply can no longer give to you what you want, and then you're not devoted to them anymore and you go find someone else, were you ever really devoted to them? If you are God's house until the pressure becomes simply too great, and then you're not God's house anymore, were you ever God's house? If you share in Christ until it becomes inconvenient, or uncomfortable, and then you don't anymore, did you ever share in Christ in the first place? Hold on, he says. But he offers some help. He says you got to help each other in the midst of this. You're not on your own. In verse 12 he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but rather exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. You know, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke sort of thing that he's giving to them. We don't read it as a joke, but as long as it's called today, what days are called today? Every day. Every day is called today. He's saying every day of your life, exhort one another, encourage one another, lift one another up, and press one another on with courage. If he or she doesn't have courage, give them yours. And carry on together, he says, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He concludes this passage reminding them who it was exactly who had quit. In fact, he says, 
these Israelites, as they wandered through the, the desert, he says they were unable to enter that rest because of their unbelief. And then he goes into chapter 4. Briefly, these first two verses of chapter 4 are a very sobering glance for us to take a look at. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who heard it. In other words, the message, the good news they heard, the gospel that they heard, as have we, was of no benefit to them because they didn't mix it with faith. They didn't believe. Now, a sermon, in that sense, is kind of like a church email. You know, we can send it to you. We can click send, but we can't make you open it. We can't make you read it. We can't make you pay any attention to it. In the same sense, when a preacher preaches a sermon, he can speak the words. You can sit there and not disrupt things and, and listen or not listen, but there's no way that a preacher can make you take it and believe. This writer says, have fear. Beware. Because the message they heard didn't benefit them. They didn't mix it with faith. In the same way for us. Should we fear that those are among us who are sitting there hearing but not listening? And therefore, it benefits them nothing. No. No. Don't quit. Don't just listen, but hear. And recognize that Jesus is faithful. God is faithful. The question then is, are you faithful to him? Prove your trust in Christ's faithfulness by persevering in your own. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you, O God, would grant to us increased faith because we recognize that, Lord, if you don't, then we will not believe that we will wander, that we will stray, that we will turn away. O Lord, would you cause that to not be so? Would you, by your own mercy and work by your Spirit in our hearts, increase our faith, strengthen us, use us to exhort and encourage one another that we might continue and not quit? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.